Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us to explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I seize pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. Predefined, misaligned, polarized division. Shuttered mind, worse than blind. 2020 vision. Almost Christmas break, Dave. I think actually you're on Christmas break, maybe officially. Uh, I'm on Christmas break. No, uh, no finals to correct this year. <laughs> yeah. First semester I haven't taught in 25 years. So yeah, usually this day would be uh, balancing the desire to uh, take time off and have 80 essays or exams in front of you. Uh, is that your case now? You, or you have those exams in front of you? Are you ready to, ready yeah, to dig they are, in? They are not graded yet. So um, in fact, I've, I haven't really gotten started on that. I've been involved in other provosting type of tasks, the, the bulk of the week. So uh, that's, that's coming soon. Probably a little bit of work on that tomorrow, maybe, maybe Monday to wrap it up, hopefully. So yeah, but it's, it's amazing. I mean, the semester's flown by and, and here we are just over a week out from Christmas. So looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, we have, uh, we have a new dog in the Corbin household, a, a puppy. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, you see tell people you have a puppy and they're like, what What happened to you? Where did you make that wrong decision? Like what? <laughs> and then you tell them that you have kids and, and it's, it usually follows a similar routine. But, yeah, we have a new dog in the household, a silver lab uh, na- appropriately named uh, given our, our new uh, home named Tex. So Tex the silver lab uh, growing at a rate of two and a half to three pounds a, a week. So he's going to be wow. a big boy. Yeah. 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 That's, that's great. Well, have you, have you fitted him for his first uh, 10 gallon hat yet? Then if it's going to be a Tex, he'll, he'll probably be able to fill out that hat. He has a yeah. huge head and huge paws. So give it, give it some time, but um, the pictures to be posted on our, on our website to come, you know? Okay. So. How, now how's Tenny adjusting? She's getting better. She, uh, she really kind of gave us that look like, what were you thinking? Um, yeah. Probably more so than even a human being asking the question. <laughs> um, d- didn't need company or anything like that. But uh, the last week they've, uh, they've been better together. Um, he just wants to be, um, you know, all over her. And um, most of the time she's fine with it, but uh, every now and then she'll snap a little bit and, and uh, he'll go run under a couch. So they are, uh, they are adapting to each other. Like uh, Tenny's adapting to him more than, than anything else. So I'm looking forward to the future wrestling matches between uh, Jack and Tex. So it seems like that could be a thing down the road. <laughs> I think he's grown about two and a half, three pounds a week as well. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's probably an even fight. It, it will be funny to see Tenny's about 40 pounds. She's a, um, a mix of um, a, a lab and a pointer. So she, here she is dealing with a 16 pound puppy that within eight weeks will be her size and, and within, you know, 12 weeks after that will be double her size. So, um, it'll be, it'll be like, um, what's that, uh, who's the, uh, the amazing big dog. What's his name? Oh yeah. Clifford Clifford. It'll be like for her, like a Clifford experience. So. Yeah. That's going to be wild. That's going to be wild. Well, good. I'm sure you'll 
keep us up to date. And by the time we, we next record, uh, text may have reached that point of being nearly as big as, as, as Tenny. So that could be an interesting new dynamic. Yep. All right. Well, let's uh, transition to Aristotle. We're got a pretty big chunk of, of book four, chapter seven to 13. We're going to look at today. Yeah. So what Aristotle attempts to do in these uh, middle seven chapters of book four is go through some other regimes in addition to uh, democracy and oligarchy. As you note from the last couple of sessions, uh, he'll say that the most prominent regime uh, throughout the Greek world, probably the most prominent regime at any uh, time is going to be, or regimes are going to be oligarchy and democracy, uh, the rule of the few who are wealthy or the rule of the many uh, who lack wealth. But in addition to those uh, two regimes uh, and uh, the kingship, there are three other regimes. Uh, Aristocracy, which is the rule of the few uh, for the common good. Polity, which is the rule of the many uh, for the common good. And then finally, tyranny, which is the rule of the one uh, for one's own advantage. So he takes up these three uh, alternate regimes, less common regimes uh, together. And and I think that there, uh, as you'll see, uh, there's a um, intentionality to this uh, presentation. Uh, and here I reference back, as I've done a couple of times, to Plato's representation of regime change in the Republic, uh, his uh, claim that regimes move in a cycle uh, and they move from what is best uh, to what is worse. And uh, important for us living in a democratic age, uh, democracy is the second to last regime uh, on uh, the rating system, and it devolves into a tyranny. Uh, here, if you were to look at uh, some of the more demo- hyper-democratic regimes in the 20th century, the Weimar Republic uh, in Germany, uh, or uh, the regime prior to uh, the collapse of, um, not Soviet, but Russian uh, monarchy, you had two regimes that had become democratized that uh, soon turned into tyrannies. Is Plato's claim uh, that democracy automatically dissolves in, into tyranny is a, is a right claim. And here, I think Aristotle is going to say that, it, that it's not. And he's going to do so by pointing us to the important concepts of how we understand a regime in terms of quality and quantity. And as we've noted on various occasions, how do we see his regime correctly? So with that in mind, he's going to give a definition of what aristocracy is in chapter seven, where he says that an aristocracy is the rule of the virtuous toward the common good. And he'll tell us that oftentimes people see Uh, other things as representing virtue. So you see that, okay, someone's wealthy, so you assume that they're virtuous, uh, or they have some sort of excellence other than virtue, and and you seem, uh, you you think that they're, they're, um, it's an aristocracy, but this is not the case, that truly uh, to have uh, aristocratic rule, you have to have good men ruling uh, over other uh, good men. Now, when that's done, he, he then turns to what, what polity is. And polity for Aristotle is probably the best possible regime for most peoples. And the reason why is it balances the tendencies of oligarchy with the tendencies of democracy. And it is possible within a polity because you have the balancing of oligarchy and democracy uh, to begin to move towards some sort of a a virtuous setting. 
So here, the excellences of excellencies of democracy and oligarchy, wealth and freedom, mixed with virtue, combine into this mixed uh, polity regime. So when I was uh, reading through this and preparing for this week's discussion, I thought back to 20th century American history and when things have been seemingly most peaceful uh, in the American body politic. And that is when there is a, a peace between the bourgeois uh, oligarchic element in a regime and the more free-spirited bohemian element within the regime or democratic element within the regime. That when there's this consensus between wealth and freedom, you have the prospect of a middle class coming forward and creating you know, a, a broad peace. So here you think about 1920s America, which we call the Roaring Twenties, or you think about the 50s as two decades in American history where there seemed to be that mixing between democracy and oligarchy. And what came along with it was a, a strong middle class and a seeming sense of arrival uh, for the country. Uh, and then when you look at other decades where, where things are a little bit more out of whack, they're out of whack because one of those two elements is, is too strong in the regime. Uh, do you think I'm onto something there? And, and do you think what we're seeing in the 20s and 50s is this balancing act between oligarchy or democracy or is something else going on there, Matt? Yeah, great questions. I mean, I think I think you are onto something. And I think the you know, as you try to translate Aristotle's understanding of these two regimes and think about how that applies in the American context, I think it, it's, it's quite notable that these are two uh, very American ideas, right? The idea of opportunity, uh, I think maybe in some ways captures both those. Uh, if, if we're the land of opportunity, it's, it's the opportunity to grow economically, improve on your situation, uh, supplant the successes of your parents and go beyond. And of course, 19th century America, that was bound up oftentimes in moving west, at least symbolically, sometimes literally, moving west meant moving out new opportunities and, and perhaps a better standard of living. And it's the intersection between the opportunity, which is maybe the freedom element, and then the success that follows from that, um, you know, the, the wealth, the oligarchic quality that really, I think, is that kind of secret sauce that, that's made America what it has been not only experientially, and maybe not always experientially, but but certainly the idea of America, I think, is is very much a combination of those two things. And, I, and as you're saying, I think when we feel like one or both of those is being lost or compromised, that's where we become uneasy. And so you think about, you know, even the politics of recent years and that 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 group of individuals feeling left behind by rapid technological progress and kind of the, you know, the, the, the loss of the good paying union job and some of those manufacturing industries that used to be the backbone of the American economy, as those things disappear, that kind of insecurity emerges, then you're, you're losing one part of that deal. And you may still have the freedom um, and maybe not that, maybe that's part of the debate and discussion as well, but, but it's, it's feeling like that freedom leads to opportunity, which, which leads to the possibility of advancement for me and my family. That, that's something I think we're uneasy about uh, in recent decades. And 
has maybe been one of those signs that that we're losing at least some sense of the the reality of the American promise, the American dream moving forward. And it's interesting because here Aristotle will say that you know that you're living in a polity uh, in this great mixed regime if it really can't be labeled democratic or oligarchic because it's just hard to tell, hard to tell uh, because it has elements of, of, of both of these regimes. And you think about, you mentioned it, the recent divisions in the country and how those have played out in national presidential campaigns. When you take a, a figure like Donald Trump, when he's saying that we ought to make America great again, he is pointing to the ball of the few uh, people he would say that are on the left in the media uh, and some corporations, et cetera, uh, that are dangerous, uh, that have made uh, the regime oligarchic uh, for their own preferences. But on the other side, whether it's Hillary Clinton or President Biden, Likewise, there's there's a claim that there is that few out there that and, and for many a progressive, it's it's the uh, it's the wealthy one percent who likewise um, want to take over the regime uh, for themselves. So it's it's interesting that while they disagree on who the few are, the formula of who to scapegoat is the same. There's a few who are taking over and they're doing so to the detriment um, of of American democracy. So it's little wonder, right, that when and these polls come up every week, every other, every other week, you know, what type of shape is American democracy in? That's, you know, worse and, and, and worse each year. And um, good reason if both uh, both aspirants to the, the crown are making the claim that the other side is oligarchic, then certainly they bring something dysfunctional with the democracy. Yeah, I think that connects back to the distinction between oligarchy and aristocracy you were talking about earlier. So oligarchy is this kind of pseudo elite class, right? Grounded in wealth, maybe other kinds of connections. Um, but aristocracy is, is the rule of the virtuous. And so when you become convinced that that ruling class, however you define it, whether it's the corporations you're looking at, or it's the people coming out of elite universities, or it's the, the media or whatever, that that leading class, that ruling class is not virtuous, right? is, is not uh, better in any important way than the rest of us, that's where you have the resentment, I think, that goes along with, with the, the kind of politics we're dealing with right now, right? Where does that populism come from? It, it comes from a, a judgment against the elite, that the elite is not <laughs> virtuous, um, right. You know, not, not virtuous in, in, in the words of Speaker Pelosi is, is, is promoting lawlessness, which is another interesting element here that the other side is, is, is lawless. Right? Not only are they oligarchic, uh, but their tendency, because they want to rule for their own advantage, is to do so in a lawless way. Uh, so this kind of merging of what they don't like in the other side with, with a claim that it's tyrannical. Uh, and this is, I think, of, of interest here, right? Because in chapter 10, right in the middle of this discussion, we're going to talk about the importance of mixing oligarchy and democracy. So you can't distinguish between the two. He's going to talk about three types of tyranny. And, and two of the three types of tyranny are lawful tyrannies. They're tyrannies that people have chosen, uh, whether they are barbarians or whether or not they see 
a need for a dictator, they choose the tyrant and the tyrant rules, but rules so because of he's, he's, he's gained the consent of the people. But then there's a type of tyrant, the third type of tyranny in which um, the tyrant rules over an unwilling people. And what this makes me think, Matt, is that, you know, okay, you can claim that the other side is oligarchic to the point of tyranny, but there are a lot of people who would embrace, you know, the, the rule of, of one side or another. And, and hence, um, you know, are people, are people really being tyrannized over or have they chosen this tyranny because it plays well to their uh, political beliefs, uh, their ideology, et cetera? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think just like you're saying, there's this uh, relativistic assessment of the lack of virtue in, in those that you're critical of. Yeah, and, and, and here it's, uh, it's interesting that you, you might say, okay, well, I, if I'm reading you all correctly in reading Aristotle this way, then is what Aristotle calling for is the rise of moderation in politics, like the, the political moderate. Is, is that moderation representative of, of the mixing? And you know, here I would argue not really because the moderate doesn't solve the problem. There's really no kind of mixing or, or mingling going on. Uh, the moderate simply tries to kind of position themselves, triangulate in a way where they can you know, gain a foothold and, and, and an access uh, to office uh, themselves. So that moderation per se, as it, as it plays out in the kind of the careful, cautious political moderate, is not doing the work of that um, intermingling and mixing and producing of common ground that, that might happen naturally uh, or has happened naturally, I think, in other parts of American history. And I think maybe if you want to use an image on this, and I think a lot of people maybe misread Aristotle on this point because they go back to his ethics and understand that, that virtues are a mean between two vices. And so you think about, okay, well, if I take kind of half of this vice and half of that <clears throat> vice, I get something good in the middle. But I think a better image is to think about an ascent, right? An ascent from vice to virtue, right? So just like you don't um, just rough off some of the, the worst edges of one vice, combine it with another vice. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm only drinking, uh, you know, three nights a week and I smoke the other nights. Oh, well, good. Now I've got it all balanced, right? That's actually not uh, a virtuous life or a pathway. That's not the solution to the problem. There's, there's an ascent to virtue from vice. And so in the same way, the, the political analog of this is not, they want to spend $3.7 trillion and you want to spend $3.2 trillion. So, well, let's meet in the middle. That's not moderation, right? Moderation is, is an <clears throat> understanding of justice that, that supersedes the, the extremes on either side, the errors on both sides. So it's not the person who scores 50 on the American Conservative Union uh, ideology test or something like that. That's the, the paragon of Aristotelian virtue, but the person who presents a right account of things as they are and pursues policies prudently that line up with the best ways to achieve those ultimate ends um, according to the regime's best understanding of justice. Yeah, and so there are figures and there have been instances in, well, I say recent, within the last 40 years where I think this is actually going on. I, 
you think of a, a political figure like Daniel Patrick Moynihan and his work on the American family. Um, you think of some parts of the uh, Reagan um, administrative program. Uh, you even think about um, uh, President Clinton and, and welfare reform, right? Those are instances, right, where there's an actual attempt, I think, right, although it didn't achieve everything that uh, they'd hoped it would, to aspire towards a more virtuous accounting on that policy issue. And you just, you, you really don't see many of those discussions happening anymore. What, what are we after? Okay, what would it take? You know, what does a more um, a virtuous uh, rendering of, uh, of this ill or, or what's a more virtuous remedy uh, to this problem look like? All right, let's see how we can get there. Um, it's that, that aspirational ascent is, is rare in, in uh, politics and in, in our discourse uh, these days. So it, it's, uh, you know, interesting as we, you know, you look forward here, um, Aristotle will say, right, that there needs to be um, a strong middle class in order for most regimes to be ruled well. But in light of, uh, of and well, if that doesn't happen, uh, a second thing that, that might produce this, this proper mixing is teaching those who kind of look at the world on a quantifiable basis, everything's a matter of quantity, to uh, better appreciate the quality aspect. And, and likewise, for those who are very uh, much looking at the world in terms of quality, to make an allowance uh, for, for quantity. So this, a, a given city is made better when those whose tendency towards looking at the world in terms of quantity kind of see the quality and vice versa. And I think that um, the word equality is, is, is key here. When we talk about equality, most people from a quantifiable standpoint just want to line up uh, the numbers and make sure that the numbers are equal, not realizing that in the word there's a quality, right? There's a certain quality to proper equality. And I think that even that kind of intellectual exercise in which we begin to realize the importance of quality in equality uh, would be helpful on this account. I think one of the interesting challenges that Aristotle leaves us with is how do you actually apply that in a, in, at, a, at a regime level? So let's say we want the virtuous to rule, and why shouldn't we? Um, how do we get them there? So Plato says, well, you have to reconstruct society and, you know, there's this philosopher king system and an education that orients toward a certain ruling class and only the people that are by nature prepared for that are into, in those offices and that education. And Aristotle gives us a, a much less guaranteed option, but one that fits our, our condition quite well. We, we have elections. Right. Rather than choosing by lot, which is the democratic alternative, where you just randomly put people in office, you vote. Now, of course, there's no guarantee that the person who's popular is the person that's most virtuous, but it does give the people an opportunity to identify virtue and elevate virtue. And it, it creates a mechanism whereby it's possible that, to borrow from the Federalist again, you have the wise and the virtuous in office and exercising not a compulsory authority over those that are beneath them that can be easily resented because you sort of claim some title to rule, but you've been elevated 
from the people. You've been chosen by the people. And so the, the quantity, the majority, right, chooses quality and, and elevates individuals of quality to positions where they can govern on behalf of everybody. Well, and you, I, I think it's great because you just mentioned uh, the Federalist. And when we went through the whole Federalist and, and we're going through in particular the nature of Republican government, the last half of the Federalist, over and over and over again, Madison and Hamilton are defining the quality that makes someone a good adjudicator or a good executive or a good legislator. So here it is. This is, this is the quality that we're looking for. Right, but it's up for you to decide whether or not we're going to have a system of government uh, that has these people in office. But you've got to define what the quality is and let people vote. And I mean, even at a at a very simple level, at a simple level, but very ordinary level for all of us. I mean, we all work in in uh, workplaces where there's a hiring process. There, and what do you do? Well, you come up with a list of qualifications, right, for a job. If you don't have that list of qualifications, if you don't have the definition of what a quality applicant look like, and you just said, you just chose someone, ah, I just like this person, right? The, the, the whole thing would be thrown off. And on the other end of the spectrum, you can list all those qualities, but if you don't give your team input to say, okay, well, this, this candidate really does have those qualities, then, and you just make that decision on your own, you might have selected a qualified candidate, but you're not going to have as much buy-in, right, from the team of people who are working together. So, in, in the hiring and a proper hiring process, emphasizing qualities that you're looking for, but by turning right to the reflection and choice of uh, a larger group uh, within a hiring committee, I, I think is helpful. Yeah, no, that's a great application of that. Well, let's wrap it up there. I think for this week, but we'll have more to say at the end of book four of the politics next time around. Uh, And so as we wrap up the show this week and begin to move toward that Christmas break we were talking about at the top of the show, uh, we're going to turn to the grade book. And so inspired by by the new dog, by Tex in the Corbin household, uh, and thinking about how this is a time of year where sometimes uh, a pet, a new pet can be a gift to a family. Sometimes um, a planned gift, maybe sometimes not a planned gift. And there's a little bit of a concern about that. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to grade some more exotic new pet choices for the Christmas season. All right. Are you ready for this, Dave? I'm ready. All right. I'm, so- I'm wondering, as you mentioned this, you know, what I, I would grade Tex and he has his, <laughs> he has his A moments uh, and, and uh, not quite fail, but his uh, yeah. B moments as well. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's uh, probably life with a puppy. Probably. I would, I would think. Right. Uh, all right, so we're going to start with um, something that you might find just, just around down there in Texas, uh, a gecko, right? So maybe inspired by Geico commercials during football games or some other way, or just stumble upon them uh, driving around. Uh, what about a gecko as a, as a family pet, Dave? You can't get the Geico commercial. I'm, I'm just thinking of the British accent, you know, gecko. <laughs> I, like that. Which, I like that, yeah. Yeah, probably wake up. Yeah, wake up, yeah. A gecko with class, right? An aristocratic gecko. Uh, I think I'd do a gecko. I mean, I, I, they're probably pretty easy. You kind of put them in a in a, a bowl or something, or like a, not bowl. I mean, I have, a, have a lid, I think. Yeah, you know, but uh, I could. I do gecko. I, I I'd say that's an A pet. You know, they come out. They're not gonna. They're not gonna bite. You know, um, 
Right. You probably just have to make sure that the house is a certain temperature. So that's an excellent, right. as, as animal uh, gifts go, I, I would give a gecko an A. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go with like a B, B minus on that one. Uh, you know, the, the look of the gecko isn't um, exactly my cup of tea. And uh, my, my, my wife's sister has kept a number of geckos over the years and um, treats them very well. does a great job caring for them, but you know, you, you, you walk into the room and there they are. And it's, it, I don't immediately think, oh, let's play with the gecko. So um, yeah. that's kind of what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about pets. So you're saying that they lack personality? A little bit, a little bit. I mean, other than the ones that are on TV commercials, right? Okay. British accent yeah. and all that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Number two, parakeet. So a little, little parrot. Um, what do you think about, about trying that out, Dave? I don't know. I, that's, that's scary that they, they just parrot everything that you say. I, yeah. I think that I just kind of wonder about that. I probably wouldn't feel comfortable with a, a parakeet in, in, in my uh, house. So I'm going to say C. I'm not saying that, that they don't have some, some virtues, but parakeet C. Yeah. The thing I think I would find annoying about, about any kind of bird probably would be just the noise. You know, just kind of, yep. apparently they don't just talk, but they also just kind of like to make noises just regularly as they're doing their thing, their parakeet thing. Um, and I can imagine, you know, if you do this wrong, let's say you're living alone, kind of have a parakeet to keep yourself company. And of course, you're not talking out loud, probably, unless you're intentionally talking to the parakeet. So, you know, does it acquire like the voice of Alexa or, you know, some TV show like, you know, you're a big Sean Hannity person or, or Rachel Maddow. And all, all you hear is the, you know, the, the, the parakeet imitating those voices. So. That, that one's going to rate low for me. I'm going to give that like a C minus, I think. I, I'm not hoping for a parakeet this year. You might give that as like a, a bad gift to someone though. Like if you you, you knew what their <laughs> politics were and, and yeah. you, know, <laughs> you know, it sounded like Hannity and all of a sudden, I've got a great gift for you, right? And, right. and we're a person of the left, you know, it would be quite, quite hilarious. That could be tough. That could be tough. Yeah. All right. Number three, guinea pig. So a lot of schools do the, like the hamster or guinea pig pet. I don't know, Dave, if, if, if Geneva goes that route, but uh, what do you think about keeping a guinea pig at home? You well, know, I, I don't know. We have guinea pigs there. We have a new Ram uh, that, that, well, it's not ours yet, but we can buy it if we want to, but a guinea, I've never been into guinea pigs. You, you're renting a Ram with an option to buy. Is that the deal? Exactly. Well, you know, we've, <laughs> we've been offered a price for the Ram, but uh, okay, we, okay. we're the Eagles. So I don't know. It'd be hard to have two, two mascots. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, guinea pig. Now I'm, I'm not. I can't give it give it an F, but I'll give it close to. I'll give that a D as well. So yeah, I think like for, as you look at it, you think, oh, it looks cute, lovable, kind of all furry and that kind of thing. And then you get into it, and I think they tend to smell a little bit. And I can't really, you know, like you put them in the ball and they roll around. Maybe that's hamsters, but I don't know. It just seems like a lot of effort and and not a lot that you're getting out of it. So that's kind of my approach with pets. You know, I'm kind of a looking to receive more than give. That's right. And, and so I think guinea pigs going to have that reversed. Okay. I'm going to go D on guinea pig. Okay. All right. Last option is a rabbit. Oh, I'm not a rabbit person either. I, okay. You know, it's, it's rough for me to have as a pet, anything that you could eat, you know, not that yeah. I want to eat it, but it just, it's like weird. Like I could, I mean, I'm not going to eat our dog. Right. But you have a rabbit there. You know, say you have a rough week, you know, Does, <laughs> yeah. you know, is it stew? You know, uh, so I, I, I'm going to stay constant here. Rabbit D. 
So I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of in a bad, bad way that three D's okay. and, a, and an A for a gecko. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, at least I know what to get you this year, yeah. but um, probably compliments a couple of dogs pretty well. No, I, I agree. Rabbits. Rabbits are kind of a lot of work and, you know, I think a rabbit, I'd be so scared if I ever went out to like visit my rabbit out in the hutch, they're just going to jump out, never see him again because, you know, they got some spring in those legs. So I think you'd have to be really careful. And that, that kind of extra stress level is not what I'm looking for in a holiday pet. So yeah. I'm going to make that someone, a C minus also. Someone walking around with a high heel or something like that, to just missteps, you know, that <laughs> got danger written all over it. So. Yeah. I don't know if I'm having my rabbit inside, by the way, but, but okay. You know, you guys can do you. So, (laughs) all right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. Certainly wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a happy new year. We're going to take a few weeks off from the show, but uh, always appreciate you listening. And don't forget, you can subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and contact us at democracy in America today at gmail.com. We'll look forward to talking to you in the new year.